this last year was proof of American greatness because these mRNA vaccines, not only are they going to have changed the history of the world when it comes to COVID, I think they're going to change every type of disease that we know of. Welcome to the American Optimist. It's great to be here. I'm Joe Lonsdale. We have Sujay Joswell here today. Sujay is the founder and managing partner of WonderCo, and you were kind of the head of business at Dropbox, and it was in its early hyper growth and the yep. CFO there. And, uh, and what, what, do you, what do you focus most on these days? Well, we, we're sort of a weird bird, as you know, where we do two things. Uh, one is we make you know venture capital and growth investments in companies and entrepreneurs that we're excited about. Is that out of WonderCo? That's out of WonderCo. Sorry, WonderCo does two things. And the venture and growth stuff is a lot of fun. We get to partner with some really spectacular CEOs. Um, but the other half, I think, is is what really is exciting for me personally, which is we actually create companies. And we do it in a couple of ways. Um, one is, uh, like you, we'll, if we have an idea that we think is great, we'll, we'll pursue it ourselves. Or option two is if we have a big idea that we think needs a kind of a, a like a booster seat or it gets going to get it going faster, we'll actually, you know, buy companies, put, put, a, bunch, put a bunch of money, put a bunch in. of, put a bunch of money in, put companies together, partner with an awesome CEO. So what's an example of one you built yourselves? Well, the, the company that I think we're, we're most excited about at the moment is, uh, is a company called Aura, which, you know, you guys are, are great co-investors with us on. And the premise behind Aura is that, um, over the last 20 years, all of our digital lives have gotten more and more complicated and interesting. And yet every single person knows that security and privacy online are worse than they've ever been. And if you fast forward, you know, 10 years, I don't think there's any reason to think that we won't have like a 10 X or hundred X problem on our hands relative to where it is today. So when you, when you came up with this idea, like how, how this gets started, you, you were worried about privacy online, you're worried yeah. about security and you go and you say, what are we going to invest in or create? So the, Half that. The other, the other half is we try to look forward and think about what the world will look like in a decade. And normally, you know, one of the great things about Silicon Valley and just generally entrepreneurship is there are amazing entrepreneurs working on most problems, right? And so what we try to find are what are areas where there's nobody working on it. And usually the reason there's nobody working on it is the activation energy that's required to get it going is too high. And that's why buying companies can actually be a really... Great the activation energy could mean that it just takes like a hundred million dollars or something to get something going. It could it could be capital. It could also be like the scope of the problem. It's just it's just gonna take a long time to build something that's useful. Yeah, and and or it's that you know like for, if you take let's just take security and privacy. If you just were to offer someone a product that hey this prote- this protects your privacy online, you know some small fraction of people would use it. If you said, hey, here's a product that blocks spam calls, some small fraction of people would use so it. So if you do a lot and of so things so at once, then maybe you can get people to actually engage. With exactly. It. So the, the analogy I have in my mind is, let's say that Netflix was actually not a platform with a lot of content. It was a platform with one show, House of Cards. How many people would subscribe just for House of Cards? Certainly some people would. But what gets people to subscribe to Netflix is that not only are they able to watch whatever they want, their kids are, their spouses, their parents are. And next thing you know, you've got a really sticky product because it kind of comprehensively covers everyone and everything you're looking for. So security and privacy, huge area, really, or as an awesome company, what are some other areas that you're excited about? Well, I mean, as a general thing, I think all of healthcare is going to get transformed. And this could be, you know, 
more complicated stuff. We were both investors in Garden Health, which, you know, we might revolutionize how cancer is detected and how early it is. It might become part of our, you know, annual screening is just to get a blood test. Um, but I'm also looking, well, we just made an investment, which I can't share just yet, but it's a company which, um, helps disintermediate how people get access to regular healthcare. So I'll give you an example of this. Right now, to get your teeth cleaned, you need to go to a dentist. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it turns out that um, in every state, there's some board. Don't trust my wife with like metal things <laughs> well, in my well, mouth. Well, you can actually get your, your wife is allowed to clean your teeth. You can't pay somebody professionally to clean your teeth unless they're supervised by a dentist. And so that's kind of an interesting notion because it's not that complicated a task. And as a result of needing that supervision, it ends up costing way more. But the dental groups all went to school for a long time, and so they spent a lot of money with government to make sure no one one could compete with them. And it turns out that if you have a monopoly on cleaning people's teeth, you can then upsell them cavity this and floss that and deep cleaning, you know, Z, right? And what we're seeing a lot of, like, you know, there are companies like Roe and Hims and Hers, which I think you were involved with, um, or at least friends with. um, Not not for me personally, but but I was an investor. Passionate advocate of all of these products. And (laughs) these are products that help with, they help with, uh, with erectile dysfunction and uh, hair loss and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing that any of us would know anything about any of those things. And the, you know, the, the thing that's fascinating about it is the way they solve, you know, normally it's pretty embarrassing. You go to your doctor's office and you kind of don't really want to share the information. Sorry, you're embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, real mature. We're embarrassed you, but you know we're we're going to keep going here. And so, so what they did was they made it really simple. They said, "Hey, just fill out this form online. You'll have a doctor pop they, up." They, they disintermediated it. You made it a way easier way to get you scripture from home. And I, so, so similar things in other areas where, where exactly. healthcare works. Kind of, it's kind of dumb how it works now versus how it could. My new dental's office in uh, in Texas, they offer like foot and hand massages while you're getting your teeth cleaned. Have you seen that? Are, are those upsells? There are other upsells while you're getting That's your amazing. teeth cleaned. Isn't that interesting? I, I would be their, their highest LTV customer. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that sounds I mean, like an amazing. It's like it's a good idea. It's like a spa day. It's a good idea. It's uh, so, 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 and so, so, you, so you there's healthcare, there's security and privacy. You guys, you guys obviously had a, a it was more Jeff Katzenberg, but you got a big thing in media called yep. Quibi, which didn't end up working out. It was a very bold attempt. Yeah, it was a big, any, it was a big any, swing. Any, any, any lessons for, for you from that? Um, you know, when distribution matters a lot in startups. You can have like a great product, but without distribution, the product doesn't matter. Distribution is really key. Is there anything about starting with less money and iterating before putting a lot of money to work on some of these things? Or is that one of the things where the activation energy was so high, the hypothesis was you just needed a ton of money, kind of like the Netflix thing where you you need a lot of stuff going on to make it work. Therefore, you have to spend a billion dollars to try. Yeah, that would that would be what Jeffrey Jeffrey says. I I, I mean, I think you could probably iterate a little bit um, before you before you do that. But but one of the fascinating things is that Roku bought the content library. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is in like the first two weeks of, of that content launching on Roku's ad-supported platform, it's the most popular content on there. So the content was very good. Obviously, you had competent people behind the content. Yeah, we had amazing stars. And the sh- I mean, I love the shows. The, no- the distribution business and the optimizing the pipeline maybe could have been done better. Yeah, and I think where the iteration like could have, could have really paid off is in iterating around go-to-market. Yeah, you probably, you probably needed some people who'd done go to market and consumer tech in their twenties, thirties, forties, iterating. Yeah, I think know. it's just you know, like even even the stuff we did at Dropbox doesn't matter today, right? Like a lot. So it's all, of, so it's, so it's all about trying like, stuff. Go to market tactics change so quickly because people, you know, the yeah. eyeballs are in different places. Yeah, and these things these things do change really quickly. So so, but but no, I think that's how entrepreneurship works. You, some things work really well, some things some things don't, and you keep yeah. going in the valley. Yeah, I prefer not to lose a lot of money when things don't work, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of the valley we're, we're, we're switching topics a bit we're here in california today in woodside yep. 
Uh, we live nearby each other here. Best place on earth. I, I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm a fan of Woodside. I, I moved to Texas and and uh, I'm only I'm only visiting here. Whereas, whereas you decide to to stick it out here. You, you, you think Woodside's your favorite place? You, you... Yeah, I think you're coming back at some point. So that's that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never admit it, but, but it, all of our other friends are. Is there anything that is there anything that Woodside or California could do other than build amphitheater near your house to make you like annoyed oh. enough to leave? All right. So uh, as as you know, I got really passionate about the the school closures issue last year. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I thought was most egregious about the COVID lockdown policies was that from August on, uh, something like 95% of private schools were open, while in California, basically no public schools were open. And to me, that was the most egregious, you know, kind of anti-poor, anti-underrepresented minority policy, I I could have ever imagined. It's already bad enough that they don't have a choice to go to a better school and they're it's going crazy. to bad schools, but the schools won't even open because the, the teachers unions here are very powerful politically. Totally. And, and, and the thing that I, I saw in with extreme clarity for the really for the first time in my life was how beholden um, politicians are to their biggest donors. That was that was astonishing to me to realize that the teachers unions had so much sway that they could almost redirect scientific policy in this country. And, and, and what's, what do you think the solution is to this? How do we oppose this? How do we fix this? Well, I think, I think the most, I mean, I, I think the most tactical thing that has to happen is people have to get active politically. Mm-hmm. I, I think that like right now, I, I think what ends up happening in a state where um, one party, it's a one party state is that almost by definition, folks in the middle sort of get sidelined mm-hmm. and, um, the most extreme voices get represented, which, you know, I'll give you an example of how, of how I know the state is more moderate than people realize. There were a number of propositions that were on the ballot last November that were fairly, you know, extreme progressive, I would call them. And they all failed. Some of them were close. Some of them were, well, close-ish, like 57, 43 kind of close. But I would, I would argue that the California electorate stood up and said, look, we're, we're actually, we're actually moderate. Like they're, there's, you know, we're, we're open-minded on ideas. And just because some, some group of people is screaming something loudly doesn't mean yeah. we actually rent, believe rent it. control didn't pass, for example, which was, for me, was a relief. Yeah. I mean, I well, there's, and, and there's, you know, I, I, I thought the, the, um, use of, um, race and admissions and, and the UC system was, a, was a, that was a close one. one. A lot of people in Silicon Valley, like speaking of Netflix, I think his wife gave a ton of money to try to allow that to, to pass. Is that know? true? Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people wow, I didn't know who that. are on the very progressive left in the Valley who, who want to be able to discriminate based on race, which that's shocking. Is interesting. Me. I mean, to me, it just feels, you know, strictly anti-Asian actually. It's it just Asians, Asians in general, obviously are doing much better right now on average in, school, in test scores. And so people are trying to be able to discriminate against them and not let them into the top schools. Yeah, I think the thing that is, um, so as, as you know, I'm highly empathetic to the plight of minorities that are underrepresented in our system. I, I do believe that there are longstanding elements that have driven systemic racism. At the same time, um, you know, if a poor Asian family puts a ton of effort into their children, working hard, building up the academic profile and credentials to go to a UC Berkeley or UCLA. And then, you know, after 10 years of them putting that effort in, 
the system just changes and all of a sudden SATs aren't allowed in the admissions process. And being an Asian is certainly it's not helpful and probably is harmful from no, no, statistically you know, it's very harmful. They're discriminating you know, against Asians actively. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that's that like, I don't, I don't know that the model for fixing systemic racism is more systemic racism. And, and so I guess it, it failed in California where they're technically not allowed to discriminate based on race, but they clearly are. Which yeah, but then they just, they just did this SAT thing a few weeks yeah, ago. Exactly. Which is, I mean, ex, I mean, clearly intended to disadvantage Asian, Asian kids. And, and so like, would you, would you encourage your kids to still go to college and still try to go to this school that's just discriminating or what's, what's the solution? Well, I, I was thinking about, um, universities a lot today in the context of student debt. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there's many approaches to it. You've got one side that thinks that, um, you should just, you know, sort of forgive all student debt. Um, you know, truthfully, I think that the, that the rate of growth of costs of universities is um, is actually a reflection of kind of a monopoly position they hold in American society. Well, it's a cartel, and it's a cartel we subsidize with the 110 billion a year of Title IV funding, right? So that, but the but the reason they're so powerful is that in order to work in corporate America, it's perceived that you need to have a university degree. Yep. Which is actually bizarre because listen, I had a great time at Princeton, but I'm not sure I learned anything that would be smart, useful. A lot of our smartest <laughs> friends dropped out of these schools and built the best. Absolutely, and I'm pretty yeah. sure if I had dropped out or you had dropped out, we'd have been just fine. And I'm my, not, my like, mom would have been really annoyed at me. Yeah, but, but, it's, well, but that's it, a cultural yeah, thing. Yeah. That's a cultural the, thing. It's a Jewish mother thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and you know, that's, I think education is certainly an incredibly important thing, but by the time you're in university, you either have the prerequisite skills. To, I was always kind of jealous of the people who dropped out. It was kind of like they were a little cooler than I was. That's because you went to Stanford. It. I didn't get in. So at <laughs> <laughs> Princeton, I don't know anybody who dropped out. My mom made me apply the last, very last day that the application was due. Cause I was, I was much more oh, you had to get forced MIT to go to Caltech, Stanford. Huh? My mom. Yeah, yeah, forced, and then yeah. well, well, I went to waitlisted yeah. me. So then I went to Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, I didn't even get waitlisted at Stanford. They just rejected me outright. My wife went to Stanford though, so I feel like I can, and I teach there, so I feel like I can claim some of it. What, are you, what have you been teaching at Stanford lately? Well, I, I used to teach two classes, so I've been doing it for, um, I mean, I think almost eight years now, where I teach at the business school, um, which is ironic because I don't know how much business school students actually study, but the- Well, you ran business for Dropbox on theory. Yeah, yeah, so if, 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 but you know, maybe I, I kind of, I've thought a lot, and maybe I should be trying to teach at the engineering school or something like that. But regardless, because um, I think go-to-market and company building and scaling is especially valuable to people who are going to build products, but don't have that other part of the toolkit. Um, but regardless, anyway, basically so, you share my bias that the technical people are actually the ones who are going to run everything and the business people are working. Yeah, them. absolutely. Well, I think the creators are the ones who are going to run everything yep. and technical people have a much easier path to creation than business people. But I actually think anybody can create things. That's fair. And so I, I'm pretty open-minded on that. I think, you, I think lots of people can build great things. And by the way, I also think, you know, computer science sounds more difficult to people who have never programmed than it actually is. And so, yeah, you're not going to build Dropbox if you're, if you're me or something like that, but certainly you can build more, you know, kind of e-commerce. You could probably build if you want like a Dropbox, but maybe well, not. that wouldn't work. I mean, the sync engine was actually real. <laughs> That's actually pretty I annoying. could build a website. Yeah. <laughs> That's useful. So, you, so, so, so despite your lack of technical skills, you're teaching them, you're teaching them the business side, to go to market, you're teaching them how to think about the, yeah. it's just quantitative skills and all so, of these things. So, well, there's, there's, and, and there's, and there's really two different types of things I like teaching. Um, one is kind of scaling companies, whether it's go-to-market, uh, culture, uh, recruiting, those elements. And the other thing I like to think a lot about is what, um, you know, what allows for disruptive ideas to become independent companies 
versus just optimize some big company strategy. Yeah. And, and so I used to teach uh, disruptive innovation and um, kind of this people operations or pe- scaling people yeah. um, for startups classes. And then it just got too much. So I just, I just do the latter now. Disruptive operations is pretty interesting though. That's a cool, that's a cool area. It is cool. And so the model for that class was um, we would just invite every, every class would have a topic. So for example, um, we, one of the topics is that there's regulatory arbitrage that a lot of times uh, regulations that are well-intentioned at any given moment, 50 years later, are actually just strangling innovation. They've broken, they've broken a space and there's all these new possibilities for how it could exactly. work. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you get the right kind of bold entrepreneur, whether it's a Travis or a Brian Chesky, they can, they can go tackle those markets and build something so much better for the consumer that the consumer is like, screw this regulation. I'm going to, you know, I'll vote against you if you don't, you'll figure if, it if, out. You, if you try to enforce yeah. it on this company. Um, so I think that area is really interesting. I also just think underutilized resources is a big opportunity and problem in our society. You know, I, I think companies that by way, I mean, by way of example, all of us have, you know, have cars that we use some small fraction of the time. This room we're in right now, I'm not usually here and it's a boardroom people could be using. There's things like, like that. Everywhere. I feel like I'm going to take advantage of this unutilized resource. You're and welcome like to do make that. It, make it my office. Our listeners something. are not welcome to do that, but you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. There you go. Then <laughs> that would become a utilized resource. That's Wouldn't that true. be better for everyone? Although I'm supposed to charge you as a theory on this, but for yeah. you, you don't. But you shouldn't get charged. But, 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 how's, but, but, so, but, the, but the idea is there's businesses that could be charging for all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. That being well, and for. the benefit of it is somebody else has already invested the capex. To, to create the resource. My wife. Yeah. <laughs> your, your wife has invested, <laughs> invested a lot of money, it turns out, to, to create an underutilized resource. And how much yeah. better would it be for, for her, the world, for me, if that resource got utilized? And, and, and so that's... What, just, what are other examples? I mean, Airbnb is a great example. Uber is a great example of the cars. Like, what, what are other examples of underutilized resources other than the obvious, like, ships and stuff and planes, which is kind of a silly one? Well, I mean, you're getting through a lot of them. I mean, basically, the thing to look for is where is a lot of CapEx go? And where is that that thing not running twenty four seven? So offices, factories, offices, power plants. You know, like like the big argument for Bitcoin being less bad from an environmental standpoint than it is. Is energy already just not being used? Exactly. Everywhere. Using off I guess resources. lots of trucks have parts of the truck aren't being used to ship exactly. something. Why not want to fill it up? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that would be another example of what we do. And then people's time who are experts at things, you, know, you can pay them yeah, for things. 100%. This is kind of what GLG and all these other companies are about is renting expert time. Exactly. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's basically all sorts of unused resources. That's yeah. interesting. And so as a result of that, your activation energy is in, that, in those examples low mm-hmm. because somebody else has put all the infrastructure in place and you're now just helping them, you know, squeeze out, you know, nickels or hundreds of dollar bills, you know, out of those, out of those things. And, and so when you're, you're teaching these different areas, I'm actually really curious, what are the things on culture that are most important that you teach when you're talking about that? So, so the biggest, so, um, and this is where we're going to probably get into a fairly controversial area, but the biggest thing I try to remind the students, because many, most of them have not started things. Most of them have worked at established companies and the hardest thing about start, like putting yourself in the shoes of someone starting a company is you don't fully appreciate how difficult it is. And so, you know, one of the examples I give them is that, you know, at this point, everybody believes in diverse teams, including me and including you. Diversity is strictly a positive thing. However, what do you do when there's a trade-off around speed? And so this is the example I'll post to them. I'll say, look, let's say you're starting a company. How are you going to recruit your first 10 employees? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you're just a person with an idea. 
in this classroom, you're graduating from Stanford Business School. You've got an idea you believe in. You've raised a few hundred thousand dollars. How are you going to convince 10 people to come join you to build this idea with you? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, that's what you do when you start a company. Yeah, you have to convince. You can't just like choose the magical diverse team that comes down exactly. with rainbows from all over the world. You, you have to convince to people to, yeah, and, to do and, this. They're probably going to be people you know who know who you are. Yeah. The only people who are going to jump on your bandwagon with you owning 30x the equity as them are people who believe in you. And who know who you are. And who are yeah. the people who believe in you? They're the people who know you well. Yeah. And so if your friend circle is not super diverse, your early employee base is not going to be super diverse. And for, you know, unfortunately, the way the, the vast majority the of people, works, most people, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of have friends that have common interests as them or have similar backgrounds. As most them of your or, friends are super fit Indians and living in Woodside. Yeah, that's, as you can tell, <laughs> like it's paid off really well for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I think that's like, and so I really want to force them to think about the things in advance that could cause them to move slowly. Because my belief is that the only advantage a startup has over a big company, and literally the, it's the only advantage, is speed. Yeah, you don't, you, you don't have to have all the bureaucrats and committees and checks and, and everything. If you do, you're yeah. almost certainly host. Yeah, if you, put, if you put in all the policies that are really expensive to follow, there are a lot of these policies that are like socially feel good are kind of like luxury goods that you maybe totally. can't afford when you're first getting going. Yeah, it's what's One of the most amazing things that happens in high growth companies is they hire a lot of people and they start moving slowly. And you're like, well, what was the point of hiring all these people if it was to move more slowly? Was this, this is especially true of HR departments. They drive me crazy. They just like yeah. slow things down so much. You just have to be able to go sometimes. They do. But then, but then the flip side is also important, right? When you get to a certain size and prominence, another thing that can slow you down is that if you haven't factored in and sorted out these issues, because then next thing you know, you're dealing with internal and external pressure constantly yep. because you've not actually solved for this. Of course, of course. So, so you need to be smart about these things. You just, have to, you just have to have a point of view going into it. And it can't be the point of view you read in TechCrunch or some other you know online paper. It has to be a point of view that you have and you're making a conscious choice around. I found that companies can only afford to be like uber super woke when they're already really big. What do you think about that? I mean, you mean when they're a monopoly, basically. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, 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 a, it's funny. I've, I've historically been like, I mean, you would probably call me far left four years ago, right? Like in terms of our friend circle, I was like, and now I probably am like, like in terms of where the world, well, you're, you're like I'm more now. or less the same as I've always been. You're the same as you've always been. But, but, you, but you become. the spectrum has shifted yeah. so fast. You become scared of the things to even further left of you. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's, it's. You know, it's um, it's it's been sort of wild to see the 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 kind of pressure to follow kind of a new conventional wisdom, and the 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 idea that you can't think for yourself. Like, if you think for yourself and you share that idea, you're in trouble. With some you groups. can get condemned with some of the most most harsh rhetoric around these people who are condemning you really have power though it seems like it's like a lot of paper tigers to me yeah like, i think well there's they have control of your reputation but right? am amongst the other people who think like them yeah but it can like i think that you know like for example my guess is it would hurt someone's ability to apply to graduate school you know it does, like if you're already wealthy and successful yeah they have no power of you but if you're gonna go to graduate school but if you're if you're trying to get promoted yeah. in a large company if you're trying to get recruit you know if you're a list if you're like a director of something at some pretty good company and you want to go be a VP of something at the next pretty good company. Then, then you have to be really careful because a lot of these big companies are controlled by people who think like these people who are extreme. That, or they're just scared of getting bad PR. 
So they're just really careful about it. Yeah, yeah they're just, they're, they're like, why unbalance? Why take the risk? So you basically, by being an outspoken person, sharing your ideas, you might have put yourself in a material career disadvantage. Is there, is there value in the world for courageous leaders who could think differently than and hire people sometimes who they realize actually Absolutely. didn't do anything really bad and they just yeah. got, got canceled? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you and I, I mean, obviously agree strongly on this. My, my view is I would rather be surrounded by people who are out on a limb than be surrounded by people who are not out on a limb, even if they believe they should be. You know, that, like, that's, like, that fear of putting yourself out there because, you know, what's the benefit? You know, kind of mm. that risk aversion because, yep. like, that to me is, is a pretty toxic thing, actually. So stepping back a little bit, looking at Silicon Valley as a whole, you know, part of what I'm inspired by, I know you are too, is we get to work on important problems yep. that matter for society. So like right now, are the Bryce people working on the most important problems? And what can we do to make sure more the Bryce people are working on the most important problems? How do you, how do you think about that? Well, I, I actually think it's about, it's about passion, right? So the way to get bright people to work on problems that we think are important is to figure out how to make them passionate about them. Like, like I, think, I think a model that doesn't work super well is getting really bright people to work on things they're not deeply curious about. Because no matter how talented you are, if you're not willing to grind through the nights and weekends and everything else. You have to really convince yourself you care about it. Exactly. And so I think the way you get people to care about things is education. It's why I teach. It's, it's the feeling that if there are ideas that I would love to challenge smart people to think about, it's my responsibility to talk about those things. Well, you should definitely be teaching in the engineering school then. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> or stimulating the creative side of business people. But yeah, sure. No, that's yeah, fair. There's yeah. some good people. I have yeah. some good friends who've gone through GSP. There's, there's like, actually tons of great companies some, coming out of GSP too. There so, actually are some pretty yeah. good people. So I think there's, there. there's plenty should, of good stuff. You shouldn't be the business school students yeah. too hard yeah. at a time. Yeah. And Listen, so, I give them a lot of times too. But, you know, one of my favorite things, I, I, so I went to HBS. I, you know frankly partied for two years. I, it was two of the best years of my life, but I didn't. My dad tells me the same thing about HBS. Okay. So it's, it's really, it's a really yeah. fun two years. You make a lot of good friends. I'm not sure how much you learn. The, um, and I was sort of skeptical about HBS grads as entrepreneurs. And then you had that class of 2012 where, you know, the guy who founded Coupang and Katrina from Stitch Fix and all these great companies kind of That's popped true. out of that one class at HBS. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to say I was wrong. Yeah, I was a, wrong on that. people got a bomb kit. Well, I think the international students are the most impressive ones there. I think bomb Kim and those ah, guys. Katrina's like, super impressive. That's right. I don't know her. But it's I think a, six on, the whole, on the whole, the international students to me seem to be the most impressive at these business schools. Is I, that not what true? I would say is that anybody who had to do something, anyone who does something hard. If you overcome tough things is, in your is, life. Is, is impressive. And I actually think just moving to a foreign country is, is not an easy thing to do. And I think sometimes the super elite smart people around the world want to be tied into our business here and that's yeah, why sure. they come. Yeah. Whereas the people who are already like really good here are already tied enough in that they don't need it sometimes. Is that, would that be an analogy? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure about the, the, the primary value of being tied in to kind of those kind of networks to me is the ability to get access to capital. That's fair. I actually think a lot of the best ideas come from not being in those networks and being in totally different environments where you're seeing problems that no one else sees. Um, but, but I think capital access is probably the best part about being part of those networks. No, that's fair. I want, I want to, speaking of capital access, if you asked me like 10 or 20 years ago, where's the next trillion dollar companies come from? First of all, there weren't trillion dollar companies yeah. back then, but, but where the really big companies come from, I would definitely say like vast majority of Silicon Valley, people underestimate the networks. 
obviously about half my money still being invested in Silicon Valley. I'm doing things all around the nation and the rest of the rest of the world. Like, have you seen at least some shift out of the Valley? Is there, is, or are you, are you, are you convinced like almost everything's being built here still, or how do you see it? No, no, for sure. It's happening everywhere. And I think that's mostly because of, because of this the smartphones. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the fact that all of us have this in our pockets means, and it's pretty easy to develop for it. And, you know, despite the criticism, Apple's built a pretty amazing distribution platform for, mm-hmm. for new products. Mm-hmm. So, so those things can be built anywhere in the world, right? Like somebody building an app in Singapore, uh, you know, for example, we, we own a product called VPN Super, which is pretty consistently like a top 10 productivity app on mm-hmm. iOS. It was uh, built by a four-person team in Singapore. Wow. This thing gets 200,000 downloads a day. So you can build these things from anywhere now. Yeah. And most of those downloads are in the U.S. But the really big companies that seem to know how to scale in the right way, a lot of it's yeah. still tied to these tech centers. Yeah, but, you know, like, like think about what are the great software companies of, of this current moment? You know, you've got Canva in Australia. You've got Miro in Amsterdam. You've got UiPath in Romania. I, I think the world has gone... I mean, I think this space... Like the whole thing has gone global because customer acquisition is accessible anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you can access American... Like, it used to be that... You had to build in the Valley or in America, at least, because that's the way you accessed American customers, consumers or B2B, right? Or, or enterprises. Now, it's just as easy for Canva to sell tools to, to people in the U.S. You have distribution it's, everywhere. It's so, so, everywhere. Yeah, so and, I, and I am helping build things in Oklahoma and Texas yeah. and Georgia and Tennessee and Iowa. So, so in that case, why stay based in the Valley? Just because it's good weather or, or is there some other advantage you get from your business? I mean, I'm, I'm here because I love it. So, but I, I mean, I have offices in LA, uh, London, New York. So I have a global, I have a global team. My bet is that innovation is going global. It's already gone global. It but no offices, in any flyover states. I mean, I'm, I'm open. Um, you know, like I saw that, um, that snowflake moved to Bozeman and I'm, I'm sure that has nothing to do with the Yellowstone club being nearby. And, and so <laughs> sort of, I think I'm joking. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, the point is, you, I don't think you need the office to actually access, as you say, the flyover yeah. states. Uh, I, you know, it's pretty easy to jump on a zoom with an entrepreneur anywhere. Got it. And so in, in cities, there's something still special about the top cities in the world. I, 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 I mean, I enjoy going decision. to places. Well, I enjoy going to places where a lot of the most talented chefs will go move to these places yeah. or a lot of the most talented artists or, yeah. and so, it's, and, there, and you know, there, so there, there is some reason why it's fun to be in the top cities if you're successful, I guess. Yeah, well, there's 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 the fun of it, um, but I mean, California is special, right? The weather is awesome. You know, when you know on days that they're like, oh my god, it's too hot. You know, it's ninety mm-hmm. degrees. It's not like two hundred degrees. It's, it's, yeah, no, so Texas is very hot. Right, the weather now. is awesome. That is the, true. You know, there's there are. I mean, you have Stanford and Berkeley here, which have tons of smart people. UCSF. My wife is a doctor there. You know, you have lots of smart people floating around this place in areas that are orthogonal to things that I know. Yeah, well, and, the revolution in bio from Stanford, Berkeley, UCSF yeah, is it's why we're is you know why we were both on the cancer board at UCSF for a while. Yeah, that's why that's why that's why I still keep my team here for bio. Yeah, you have to be here exactly. So 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 in that case, what needs to be done to ensure that America remains the world's most innovative tech hub? Like, what can America be doing to make sure it keeps its position? Because things are spreading out everywhere, but but like, how can America stay top so of this? My single biggest fear for Silicon Valley is the cost of living, mm-hmm. and the reason that matters is if you're a startup. And you need to pay your engineers $250,000 to, so that they can afford to live. Almost by definition, you can't hire, afford that many engineers, right? And, and, and it, it limits your ability as, a, as an entrepreneur to develop products, to go to market, to all these things, right? 
I, th- I thought it was amazing you told me you'd be willing to even have affordable housing built near your house in Woodside. Absolutely. If necessary. Most people sure. are always against anything coming by their house, but you're like, just, yeah. we have to do it anywhere we can. Listen, this is like, I'm like a, in this way, I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I mean, I, mean, I would... I like being, I like meeting all sorts of people. Well, it's fascinating because you're bleeding heart, but it's also like a libertarian thing. It's a free market. that you build where people want to build yeah. as opposed to the government creating artificial scarcity, which they have to do right now. Right. My belief is that with, within the bounds of harming other people, people should be able to do what they want. And I think restraining that has been the single biggest inhibitor on certain groups of poor folks and Certain minorities. Yeah, yeah when, you, when you create when you create top down rules from the government with zoning or anything else, it actually hurt more minorities and poor people than anyone else. Here's right? what I think about: it. I've never met someone in my entire life who thought who who's a, who works in a professional environment who thought their job would be better if their boss's boss's boss was making the decisions for them. Yep. Everyone feels like they would do they would make better decisions for the work they are responsible for than some person who sits in the corporate office, and yet. Some for some reason we've decided that some magical group of people in DC who tend to get elected based on political donations or something of that nature, or some sort of, you know, weird clubbiness in their party, are better at making decisions for for any of us. Or Sacramento in this case in California, right? Oh, that's as well, that, I mean Sacramento. Which is a disaster. Or, disaster. you know, I remember we the yeah. city council on Woodside, you have to ride horses with them to go on the meetings. And maybe is I that just, true? Oh, yeah. No, we tried to take it over at one point and we realized it'd be <laughs> a lot of work. And, but I mean, by the way, this is why I'm very, I love Woodside. This is why I'm very bullish on Austin, Texas, because it's very easy to zone and build there right now. So yeah. that's one of the reasons why I'm building a lot of tech stuff there yeah. is I think you're going to see, even though the prices have gone up, they're going to actually go down there a lot faster because we can build a lot more. So, 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 yeah. so it is one advantage. Yeah. I, I think it's a huge advantage. I mean, what the, the moment for me that I realized that, uh, remote workforces were going to change Silicon Valley was when I read the zoom S one. So when, when zoom went public, it was this crazy business that had a few hundred million in revenue was growing a hundred percent year over year, but was profitable. Like that doesn't happen in software. That yeah, was impressive. Right. Yeah. And so, so I was like, what, what's going on here? Well, it turned out, I think their entire engineering team is in Beijing. The fully loaded cost per engineer, if I remember correctly, including equity and everything else, was $40,000 a year. The fully loaded cost for any other software company has got to be in the valley for a local engineer has got to be $400,000, $500,000, including equity. And so that's a 10x cost differential. It's a a, a huge difference for some of these things. And you could still build a great product and company with that model. I think they did have some experienced people here. Eric was I think a lot of their product managers were here. Yeah. So I think some of the people designing it were here as no, well. No, no, the product teams were here. Yeah. But but my point is you you know You can scale elsewhere for cheap. Exactly. I want to ask more question. Like, so America in ten or twenty years, what's something awesome about it that, that we don't appreciate yet that's coming? To me, this last year was proof of American greatness. Because these mRNA vaccines not only are they going to have changed the history of the world when it comes to COVID, I think they're going to change every type of disease that we know of. Uh, and that's, you know, there's of course, you know, bioengine in, 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 in Germany, but that was by and large American innovation, American, you know, scale up American distribution, American funds. And that model where America can throw its resources, its customer base, it's, you know, kind of ingenuity, at massive world scale problems. I mean, that's like, we're, we're an incredible country, right? It's amazing. So America still is going to continue impressing people with that innovation could do here. Yeah. I, I, the only thing that makes me a little nervous is I feel like the clo- the, the, our, 
closed-mindedness over the last four years to the brightest engineers coming here as immigrants was really stupid. Like that was a, it was just insane to me. Yeah. Well, there's, and there's, there's a lot of people working on that on both sides. To try yeah. To fix they, we, need to, we need to fix it. We need to fix it. We now. got the, the shining beacon yeah. in the world that the best people come to Absolutely. to build and then we're going to win. And, and we have like, you know, many, it, among, you know, many of the best universities in the world are here. I, I do think it's problematic that these universities, you know, 95% of the faculty vote for one party. That's strikes me as not a healthy environment to not conducive to teaching people kind of broad thinking, but you know, I'm saying this is a generally pretty liberal person. Like, I think it's better to hear. Like, it's great that I have so many friends from diverse you want, backgrounds. You want, you want open thought and open discussion without getting blackballed I, I, for I it. I want people to think critically. And I think critical thinking comes from an openness to having your ideas challenged. Like, and I, I think it's better for people to be comfortable sharing half-baked ideas and getting, you know, taking the heat for them and fighting back and debating them and coming to well, a you know, That's what liberal is supposed to mean is open critical thinking and open debate. That's, 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 we the need that back. I, I'm, I'm nervous about the loss of that. And I'm nervous about the, um, the closed border stuff, but I think, I, I think, you know, we'll make good progress on certainly the border side for sure, the immigration side. And I think with enough folks who are willing to have the courage to, to speak whatever their truth is. I think that's going to be a good thing. I think we're, we're gonna, back. And we're working on it. Some of us talk about building some new institutions. So we'll, we'll chat about that more. Yeah, and also your podcast. I mean, I think the purpose of your podcast in many ways is to get to get ideas out there. And I, I love that. Awesome. Sujay, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, thanks.